Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Gordon held tight to the jackhammer as it pierced another concrete slab, the vibrations of the drill only intensifying his steadily growing urge to pee. With one last chunk dispersed, he eased off on the grip and signalled to a co-worker to take over. It was June 1989 and another mild summer's day in Richmond, the coastal city just south of Vancouver in southwest Canada. Gordon and his co-workers had spent the best part of the morning breaking up paving stones outside 8100 Blundell Road in preparation for the laying of a new sidewalk. Looking for a suitable place to take a leak, Gordon spotted an old derelict house just off the main road and headed off toward it. Ducking in behind, he continued on through the tall grass toward a small wooded area to the side, but was startled by the sight of a woman lying fast asleep on the ground, tucked up like a ball. Gordon turned instinctively to head back out, but something told him to stop and turn around. Looking closer, he realised with horror that the woman's hands and feet had been tied up behind her. And then it hit him with a nauseating rush. She wasn't sleeping at all. She was dead. When the Royal Canadian Mounted Police arrived shortly after to investigate, it didn't take them long to identify the body. Though the skin was significantly discoloured and desiccated, there was little doubting that this was the woman they'd spent the last two weeks looking for, 44-year-old nurse Cindy James. Back in May, Cindy's car had been found abandoned at the Blundell shopping centre over a mile away, with recently packed groceries on the front seat and a present she'd bought for a friend's son on the back. Some of Cindy's blood was found smeared across the door and her bank cards scattered on the ground underneath the vehicle, suggesting that some kind of a struggle had taken place. Examining Cindy's body, police found that her blouse had been ripped at the neck and there were buttons missing, 
both her hands and feet had been tied together and a black nylon stocking had been tied tightly around her neck. At autopsy, a puncture mark was found on her right arm, likely to have been caused by a needle, but no needles or any other drug paraphernalia was found anywhere near the body. Cindy's last known movements were traced to a Bank of Montreal deposit machine close to where her car was found, where she was believed to have deposited a cheque at 7.59pm on the evening of May 26th. She was due to take five days' leave from work the day she disappeared. As the coroner confirmed, Cindy had most likely died soon after depositing her cheque at the bank two weeks before her body was discovered. That it had been found only a short walk from a major road suggested, however, that it had been placed there quite recently, meaning this was almost certainly a murder. But then again, nothing about Cindy's bizarre and tragic story had ever been certain. You're listening to Unexplained, and I'm Richard McLean Smith. Cynthia Hack, known as Cindy, was born in Oliver in the Canadian province of British Columbia in the summer of 1944 to homemaker Matilda and her husband Otto, an education officer in the Canadian military. The couple would go on to have six children, with Cindy being a middle child, before eventually relocating to Vancouver. At 17, Cindy, intent on pursuing a career dedicated to helping others, enrolled in a nurse training course at Vancouver General Hospital. It was two years into her course that the by then 19-year-old Cindy paid a visit to the office of Dr. Roy Makepeace, the hospital's newly appointed resident in psychiatry. Cindy was working on an assignment about the impact of the contraceptive pill and was hoping to speak to Dr. Makepeace about the project. When the pair met that day, little could they have known just how much their lives were about to change. The 39-year-old Makepeace, halfway through his residency, had emigrated to Canada with his wife and children from South Africa two years previously and would likely have returned there a few years later had he not met Cindy. As it was, the pair embarked on an affair soon after their first meeting, with Makepeace eventually ending the relationship with his wife the following year. In December 1966, Cindy and Dr. Makepeace were married. By 1981, 15 years later, Cindy had turned her focus to helping children specifically and was employed as a team coordinator at Blenheim House, a local facility for children deemed to have emotional and behavioural problems. Having been seemingly happily married for 15 years, cracks were now beginning to show as she routinely informed her colleagues about her increasingly difficult marriage. The following year, Cindy and Roy agreed amicably to separate. A few weeks later, after deciding to put their house on the market, Cindy moved with her beloved dog Heidi into a one-storey bungalow on East 40th Street, a short walk from Vancouver's Mountain View Cemetery. It was the first time in her life that Cindy had ever lived somewhere on her own, and despite the fact that she shared the building with a couple who rented the basement apartment below, there was no escaping the sudden shock of loneliness. It was only three months later 
that the phone calls began. It was late one October evening when Cindy's phone rang. Hello, she'd said expectantly. What came back, as Cindy later explained to police, was a sickening, raspy voice which proceeded to describe in graphic detail all the ways in which the caller was planning to sexually mutilate her. After slamming the phone down, Cindy claimed it rang again almost immediately. Answering it again, in the vain hope that it might be someone she knew, she was greeted this time by the sound of someone breathing heavily into the receiver. The next day, after another breather call, terrified, Cindy closed all the curtains in her apartment, only to receive another call soon after from the man with the raspy voice. Don't think pulling the drapes means I don't know you're in there, he said, followed by, you're dead, Cindy. When Cindy came home a few nights later to find her back window had been smashed, she decided finally to call the police and inform them about all that had happened. With little evidence to go on, however, the best they could offer was to suggest that she keep a record of any similar calls and to contact them again if she heard anything suspicious outside her apartment. Later that week, Cindy arrived home with her good friend Agnes to find her back door wide open. Too afraid to go in, the pair went straight to Cindy's neighbour next door, who in turn offered to check the apartment for her. After finding nothing untoward, the neighbour told them it was safe to go in. Agnes had just watched Cindy rush into her bedroom to check that nothing had been stolen when she heard a terrible scream coming from inside the room. Agnes rushed in to find Cindy crying and shaking on her bed, pointing toward the pillow. It had been slashed multiple times by a sharp object. Royal Canadian Mounted Police Constable Pat McBride arrived on the scene 20 minutes later. After conducting a search of the premises, he sat and listened patiently as an understandably traumatised Cindy detailed everything that had been happening over the last few weeks. She had the sense that the police weren't treating the issue seriously enough. But with no prints or any other clues as to who was harassing her, all McBride could offer was that she installed better locks and change her phone number. He also offered to put in a request for patrols to be stepped up in the area and that he would personally check in on her from time to time. A few days later, he stopped by Cindy's house to install a series of deadbolt locks on her doors. It was only a few days after that that Cindy received the first of her threatening notes. Made from crudely cut and pasted words and images taken from magazines, she claimed it had been left for her on her back porch. When Cindy showed it to McBride, he made the extraordinary decision to move in to Cindy's apartment. Though McBride ostensibly moved into Cindy's flat as a stopgap while looking for a new apartment for himself, the pair soon developed a more personal relationship. McBride's presence, however, did little to stem the tide of harassment, and nor did changing the phone number. A few weeks after he moved in, McBride returned from work to find Cindy distraught 
after receiving another disturbing call. A week later, she showed him another note that she'd received, this time left on her car windshield. It depicted a blonde-haired woman, not too dissimilar to Cindy, cut out from a magazine, with her eyes scratched out. McBride learned from a neighbour of Cindy's that she too was receiving nuisance calls. Another neighbour, who lived behind Cindy, informed him that he'd recently seen a man wandering about his garden late at night. The man had bolted when he realised he'd been seen, breaking the garden gate in his haste to get away. Another claimed to have seen a man they didn't recognise coming and going from Cindy's property. It wasn't long before suspicion turned to Cindy's husband, Dr Roy Makepeace. However, when McBride paid him a visit, he found little reason to suspect him of any wrongdoing. In late November, McBride returned from work with a partner to find Cindy in an agitated state. She'd received another nuisance call in the morning, but when she tried to call the police shortly afterwards, her phone line was dead. McBride took a flashlight and headed out to the junction box by the side of the house. Cindy's line had been slashed in five different places. The line for the apartment downstairs had been left completely untouched. McBride moved out of the apartment a few days later, but the pair continued to see each other, occasionally even double dating with Dr Makepeace and a woman he was seeing at the time. Cindy would spend Christmas that year with her husband and her parents in Vancouver. Any normality offered by the holiday season, however, was soon shattered early in the new year, with another series of disturbing calls reported to the police by Cindy. McBride decides to step up the investigation and instructs her telephone company to try and trace the calls. One silent call is traced to an exchange box on the southwest side of Vancouver closest to Richmond, and another to a different exchange close by. In mid-January 1983, McBride witnessed Cindy receive one such call for himself. Taking the phone from her hand, he listened in. Aside from the sound of someone breathing, he was able to discern a voice coming from a tannoy system. The call was traced to an exchange box close to Vancouver Airport, suggesting a possible lead. It also seemed to rule out Dr Makepeace, since Cindy had only spoken to him on a phone call minutes before, and there was little chance he could have driven out to the airport in time. Feeling increasingly exposed, after confiding with Roy and her friends, Cindy makes the decision to move house before things escalate any further. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. Sign up today and start communicating in less than 48 hours. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. You can also log into your account anytime to send a message to your counsellor. BetterHelp is not a crisis line, nor self-help. It is professional counselling done securely online with a broad range of expertise available. And with BetterHelp's commitment to facilitating great therapeutic matches, they make it especially easy and free to change counsellors to help you find the right fit. Visit betterhelp.com 
forward slash reviews to read the many glowing testimonials posted every day from grateful clients. And if you're interested in signing up, go to betterhelp.com forward slash unexplained one zero and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com forward slash unexplained one zero and join the over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. By late January, with Roy and Cindy's marital home yet to be sold and Cindy struggling to find a suitable apartment, Roy offers to move out of it so Cindy can stay there until she finds a new place. Throughout the misery of the last year, Cindy had often turned to her good friends, Agnes and Tom Woodcock, for emotional support, even staying with them or having them stay over at hers whenever she felt especially vulnerable. The Woodcocks, who, being a little older than Cindy, thought of her much like a daughter, were only too happy to help and had been devastated by the distress it was clearly causing her. On the evening of January 27th, Cindy called Agnes to ask if she wouldn't mind helping her pack up the apartment in preparation for her move back to 41st Street. It was shortly after 9.30pm when Agnes pulled up to Cindy's apartment and made her way to the front door. When she knocked, however, the place seemed strangely quiet and there was no sign of Cindy. Thinking her friend might be in the bath, Agnes headed round the back when she heard a pained moan coming from out of somewhere in the darkness. Racing into the garden, Agnes was horrified to find Cindy slumped in a daze in the stairwell of the basement apartment, with bruises and cuts all over her that were bleeding through her clothes. More shocking still was the black nylon stocking tied so tightly around her neck Agnes couldn't even get her fingers underneath to loosen it. Agnes banged on the basement door, where Cindy's neighbour soon appeared, similarly shocked by the sight of it all. Running back inside, they returned moments later with a knife and promptly cut the stockings off, and together with Agnes, carried Cindy inside. A severely dazed and confused Cindy fought for breath as Agnes called the emergency services and did her best to calm her friend down. Seeing Cindy more clearly now, Agnes gasped at the sight of her ripped blouse and the tear in her trouser leg, which was soaked in blood. The police and ambulance services arrived minutes later. Just before she is rushed off to hospital, Cindy tells the police that she was attacked while collecting removal boxes from her garage. A constable, Val Willicott, was left behind to investigate the scene. After getting Agnes and Cindy's neighbour's version of events, Woolacott inspected the garage. Having turned on the light, he was surprised to find it full of neatly stacked boxes, with no obvious sign of a struggle. However, there was a smear of blood on one of the boxes. Walking through the apartment, he also found blood on the bathroom counter, still wet, and a chair placed under a crossbeam, as if someone had planned to stand on it and hang themselves, he thought. Later that evening, Willicott spoke to the doctor who treated Cindy. He confirmed that she'd sustained multiple injuries, from bruises to cuts on her arms, back and legs. But there is something unusual about the way in which many of the cuts appear to run parallel to each other. Having taken it all into account, 
Willicott concludes that Cindy had done it all to herself. His final report marked it up as a suicide attempt. The chair positioned under the crossbeam was later revealed to have been put there arbitrarily by an officer who assisted at the scene. After Willicott's assessment, the case is handed over to veteran detective David Bowyer-Smythe, who is unconvinced that it was an attempted suicide. The following afternoon, having spent the night in hospital, Cindy arrived at Oak Ridge Police Station to give her version of events. As Cindy went on to explain, shortly after speaking to Agnes on the phone, she'd gone out to the garage to collect some removal boxes. Once there, she switched on the light and took as many boxes as she could carry back to the apartment before returning to collect some more. But when she came back, she noticed the light had gone out. She stepped back in to turn it on, and that was when he grabbed her. Keep quiet or I'll cut your face, he said, grabbing her from behind. After feeling a series of scratches on her arms, she tried to break away, but he held firm, holding a knife out in front of her taunting her about how he didn't want to cut her throat because it would be too quick. The next second, he was tying something around her neck. She tried to kick back, but he pushed her to the floor and cut her leg before he got up suddenly, said something like, it will take a long time to die, and then disappeared. Struggling to breathe but unable to remove the ligature around her neck, she stumbled toward the door of her neighbour's basement flat, The next thing she remembered was being revived by Agnes. Cindy added that she'd felt a sting on her arm when she'd been grabbed. When Bowyer Smythe examined it, he found what appeared to be a needle puncture wound, suggesting the possibility that she'd also been drugged in the attack. Though it seemed unfathomable that Cindy had done all of that to herself, that a colleague had determined that to be the case certainly gave Detective Bowyer Smythe food for thought. It seemed odd, too, that, despite the raft of harassment incidents, nothing incriminating had been found to help nail the suspect. At the very least, he couldn't help but feel that Cindy was holding something back. In discussing potential suspects, focus inevitably turned to those closest to Cindy, in particular, Dr. Roy Makepeace. Though Cindy was adamant it wasn't him, Bowyer Smythe felt obliged to pay him a visit. After meeting with him the following week, Makepeace was found to have a solid alibi for the night in question. He was then invited to take a lie detector test. However, the test was voided when it was revealed that he was taking medication that could unfairly affect the result. The following day, Cindy also took a lie detector test. She failed it twice having been asked if she had inflicted the injuries on herself. However, the analyst is unable to determine whether she'd lied or whether the trauma of the event had made it impossible to read her emotions. Days later, she contacts the police to inform them that she had withheld information after all, hinting that she had some idea who her attacker was. She hadn't said any more because she was afraid they might attack her friends and family in retaliation. She begged Bowyer Smythe to drop the investigation entirely, but he declined. 
In the end, Cindy was told to simply contact them again should anything else happen, and in March, the investigation into the apparent attack was brought to an end. For Cindy, however, it seemed that things were only just beginning. Within a month, she is contacting the police again to report yet more disturbing phone calls. She moved again to West 14th Street in Vancouver and took the opportunity to escape it all by visiting her brother in Indonesia. But within days of her return in August, she is on the phone again to the police. She'd received another threatening letter, this time delivered to her place of work. Welcome back, it said, with the words death, blood, love and hate cut and pasted into it from a magazine. A month after that, she called the police again to inform them that she'd found a dead cat strung up in her back garden. There was another note, too, that said simply, You're next. The police again, however, inform her that without fingerprints or any other incriminating information, there was nothing they could do. In her frustration, Cindy turned to Pat McBride, who she continued to date on and off since he moved out of her apartment the previous year. Unable to devote more time himself, he instead put her in touch with his friend, private investigator Ozzy Caban. After learning about Cindy's troubles, the amiable Caban is left utterly bemused by the police's inaction. He reassured Cindy that, come what may, they would find her attacker. He began by installing a burglar alarm at her property and setting her up with a two-way radio, as well as a panic alarm should she ever need immediate assistance. It wasn't long before she used it. Shortly after the new year, Caban was in his office, wrapping up for the evening, when the two-way radio crackled into life. Through violent bursts of static, he could hear what sounded like some kind of struggle taking place. Within minutes, he was in his car and racing towards Cindy's home. When he pulled up outside her apartment moments later, he saw the lights were on, but when he knocked on the door, there was no reply. He tried the radio again, imploring Cindy to pick up, but there was nothing but dead air in response. Heading into the back garden, he spotted her through a side window, lying completely still, face down on the kitchen floor. Caban radioed for the police, then quickly made his way to the back door. Smashing his way inside, he found Cindy unconscious, with once again a pair of black nylon stockings tied tightly around her neck. Perhaps more shocking, however, was that a paring knife had been stabbed right through her hand, pinning a bloody note into her palm, which read, Now you must die, followed by a four-letter expletive. After being rushed to hospital, Cindy eventually came round, where she was met by detectives eager to find out exactly what had happened. As Cindy went on to explain, she'd been preparing food in the kitchen when she saw someone approaching the back door. Thinking it was her neighbour, she opened the door to greet them, only to find it was actually a complete stranger. The last thing she remembered was seeing something heavy in their hand, and then finding herself on the ground, feeling a needle going into her arm. Back at Cindy's apartment, Royal Canadian Mounted Police searched her property for any sign of an intruder 
but found nothing to suggest that she'd been anything other than alone until Gaban had found her. One officer would later note that a series of circular blood smear patterns found on the kitchen floor suggested that at some point before Cindy was found, someone had tried to clean up the blood. As they also noted, never in ten years had they ever investigated a crime scene where an assailant had made attempts to clear up the blood. For many in the police department, it was just yet more evidence that Cindy's case might not be all that it seemed. Due to the severity of the possible crime, however, it was decided to give Cindy another lie detector test. When asked if she was her own stalker, Cindy replied emphatically that she wasn't and was judged to be telling the truth. When asked if she wrote the offensive note to herself and stabbed it into her own hand, she again said no and was again judged to be telling the truth. The result was little consolation for Cindy and her family and friends, however, who remained convinced that a violent attacker was still at large. For the experienced private investigator Ozzy Caban, who had by then become a close confidant of Cindy's, it was simply absurd to think that she could possibly be doing it all to herself. Caban was left in no doubt that Cindy's life was still very much in danger, and if they couldn't find the culprit soon, something even more terrible was going to happen. You've been listening to Unexplained, Season 5, Episode 2, Endgame, Part 1 of 3. Part 2 will be released next Friday, October 2nd. If you enjoy Unexplained and would like to help supporters, you can now do so via Patreon. To receive access to ad-free episodes, discount on merchandise, as well as brand new video and audio content exclusive to Patreon members, just go to patreon.com forward slash unexplained pod to sign up or if you'd like to make a one-time donation you can go to unexplainedpodcast.com forward slash support all donations no matter how large or small are greatly appreciated unexplained the book and audiobook featuring 10 stories that have never before been covered on the show is now available to buy worldwide you can purchase through amazon barnes and noble and waterstones among other bookstores all elements of unexplained including the show's music, are produced by me, Richard McLean-Smith. Please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. 
visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.